Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Doug Lemoff. Let's be honest, Doug is a legend. He's probably best known as the author of Teach Like a Champion, a book which has had a huge influence on the last few years of my teaching and thinking, and which I firmly believe is a must for all teachers to read. Jam-packed as it is with loads of practical, easy-to-implement strategies that can be truly transformative. Doug is also the co-author, along with his Teach Like a Champion colleagues, of Practice Perfect and Reading Reconsidered. He is a former teacher, the former managing director of Uncommon Schools, something we talk about in the interview, and his CPD sessions are regarded as some of the very best in the world. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. Where did the idea for Teach Like a Champion come from? Doug and I then share our past mistakes with regard to tells in the classroom. Doug picks out one strategy from Teach Like a Champion that everyone listening can use right away, and it is a classic. Then we get a world-exclusive look at some strategies that will be included in Teach Like a Champion 3.0. I then ask Doug about professional development, and he shares some outstanding practical advice for anyone giving any form of training to their colleagues. Doug then reflects on what he feels is the most important finding from educational research that all teachers should be aware of, before finally sharing some wonderful book recommendations and blogs to check out. Look, I'll be honest, I was incredibly nervous in the build-up to this interview. I even had to knock back two cups of Mellow Bird's coffee to take the edge off. I guess I should be used to talking to my heroes on this show by now, but Doug was someone I had wanted to have on for so long. But I need not have worried. Doug was humble, knowledgeable, engaging, and just a superb guest. This is another of those interviews to share with your non-maths colleagues, as the ideas and insights Doug shares are incredibly useful no matter what subject you teach. Oh, and if you haven't snapped up Teach Like a Champion 2.0 yet, then what on earth are you doing? Get it bought, I promise you will not be disappointed. Speaking of books, notice the seamless transition there, let me quickly take this opportunity to mention, and when I say mention, I of course mean shamelessly plug, my own book. In tribute to Doug, perhaps I should have called it Teach Like a Maths Teacher Who Has Been Getting It Completely Wrong For 86% of His Career. But in the end, I went for How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. It is based on my thoughts from two years of interviewing the world's leading educational experts on this podcast, including Dylan William, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, Daisy Christodoulou, Greg Ashman, Chris Bolton, Doug, and many more besides, as well as reading over 200 research papers and books. But most importantly of all, trying, failing, and modifying strategies based on the experience of my students. It is published by John Cat Education, and it should be out in time for Christmas. Just in case you're short of gift ideas for your mum, son, granny, dog, etc. 
Anyway, I know you're itching to hear from Doug, so I will deprive you no longer. I'll be back at the end of the interview with my takeaway, where I'll be reflecting on another Teach Like a Champion strategy that has really improved my approach to teaching. But without further ado, and I'm so flipping excited to say this, I give you Mr. Doug Lemov. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Doug, so we start, as ever, with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Well, I'm embarrassed to start with the downer, but I'm not sure that I have a favorite number. Oh, Doug, don't don't do this to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my children play a lot of sports, so whatever their jersey number is at the time, I guess would be my favorite number. Nice. Okay, I'll give you that one. Perfect. Um, Well, I'm not letting you get away with this then. What was your favorite topic in maths as a student? You know, I really loved uh, geometric proofs when I was uh, when I was a student. Uh, just remember the loving the challenge of here's a triangle. How do you know it's uh, how do you know it's congruent with another triangle? Jeez, I, I don't think we've ever had that answer. Somebody really enjoying the, the geometry side of proofs. What 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 was it? What drew you towards them? Do you think? Well, you know, people people say you're either a geometry person or an algebra person. I'm probably more of an algebra person now, but when I was when I was young, I really loved the, uh, I think I loved the problem solving aspects of it. I like to do, um, you know, those logic problems where they have, you know, there's Mr. White, Mr. Green, yes. uh, Mrs. Brown and Mrs. Purple. Mr. White has a Jaguar, uh, but he does not own a, a lizard. You, yeah. know, you, have to out, you have to figure it out, figure out who, I, I always loved logic problems like that. Maybe there's some aspect of that in the, in geometric proofs. Got it. Fantastic. And then final question, uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Uh, that's a great question. Throughout my 20s, I imagined myself uh, being one of those bohemian travel writers who went <laughs> to different places in the world and wrote really fascinating, deep reflections on, you know, what it was like to be standing in the jungles of Borneo or someplace like that. So maybe I'll be either, either that, either. <laughs> maybe that's as good an answer as anything else. <laughs> was that ever on the cards, Doug? Did you ever dabble with that lifestyle? Um, a little tiny bit. Uh, I started out doing it and then you know, I kind of stumbled into education and loved it and uh, thought I'd said goodbye to my writing life. And interestingly, you know, after many years in education, I ended up, I guess you could argue I'm a writer now. So uh, so I feel lucky that it kind of, you know, writing came back into my life. It is something I enjoy a lot. So. Fantastic. Well, well, that teases up nicely. I, um, I wonder if you could just give us a, a quick overview of, of your career to date, Doug. Just, just bring us up to date with, with how you got to where you are now. Sure. When I left university, I taught English for several years at a an independent school in New Jersey. Enjoyed it. Found myself wondering, uh, you know, this is about the time I was imagining being a, a travel writer. If you know anything about the United States, New Jersey is probably not the most glamorous part of the United States. <laughs> I found myself thinking, I'm 25. There's a whole world of adventure out there, and I live in New Jersey. So uh, I left. I did some traveling. I drove a a truck, a lorry for a while and, you know, uh, saving money to go to graduate school. And I thought that I would, I worked as a journalist and I thought my dream was to be a professor of English at university. And, uh, the cynical view might be that, you know, uh, 
spend my time opining on Keats. <laughs> the more the more the more generous view is to pay back all the incredible professors that I've had in university sure. <laughs> influenced me so deeply. Uh, I went into a PhD program at a large university in the Midwestern part of the United States a couple years into it. Um, the dysfunctions of the system and the dysfunctions of academia. I guess that's that's. Uh, that's sort of a cynical way, but I, I realized that I didn't want to be a professor and that the professor's life was not about teaching. Uh, and so I, and I just realized I would never be happy toiling on the way, toiling away in the bowels of ma- a machine that I didn't have any control over. So I went, I, I just networked with a lot of people and I found out about these things called charter schools, which were autonomous small schools starting up mostly in the inner cities around the U.S. I ran to this woman who I knew from university who was starting one, and I said, gee, okay, I'll do that. I'll start a charter school with you. Uh, I was really interested in um, English and history, but also in uh, the culture of schools uh, and things like social promotion. And so I ended up being the dean of students, who's in the U.S. That's the person you get sent to if you're in trouble in school. Sure. Not a lot of competition for those jobs, so I rose quickly. <laughs> they had no one else to choose. Uh, and then a couple years ago, this is sort of 1997 or something, uh, and I was like 28 years old, and the woman who had founded the school called me into her office and said, guess what? And I said, what? She said, the funding came in. And I said, the funding for what? And she said, the funding for my, my new venture. Uh, she'd started this information technology uh firm to manage the information of schools and she was moving out to Silicon Valley to start this thing up and change the world and she said and guess what else and I said what else and she said you're in charge and I, I looked over my shoulder to make sure she wasn't talking to somebody else but there I was uh, so I ran this uh, this charter school in uh, in Boston for several years uh, enjoyed it uh, but somehow knew it wasn't always where I wanted to be I Worked for a couple of years at the authorizer of charter schools in New York State, which sort of uh, designing and uh, designing the system by which we assess schools. So part of the deal with charter schools in the U.S. is the idea is they're supposed to be more autonomous, more freedom, more flexibility, but also more accountable. Right. Uh, and we we'd hauled off and given them a lot of freedom, but not a lot of accountability, and no one had really figured out what measurement should look like. So I spent a couple of years doing that, and it was fascinating and fun. And then I went to business school with the idea of uh, starting my own school management organization. Uh, and in the course of doing that, I, you know, I sort of was in touch with this uh, colleague of mine, Norm Atkins, who is a kind of brilliant entrepreneur. And he rounded up a group of us who had started, who had run relatively successful early stage charter schools and imagined this thing called uncommon schools that would be a network of network and networks. And I didn't really understand what either of those things were, but Norm, <laughs> Very compelling. So I said, sure, I'm in. So then a couple years after business school, he called me and said, guess what? And I said, oh, no, another guess what conversation. The money's come in, the seed money to start these schools. So uh, when can you start? So uh, I started, I work, I live in upstate New York. So I started founding schools in upstate New York, um, Rochester and Troy, which are uh, probably a bit like the Northeast in, in the UK. Uh post-industrial, uh, you know, no one, no one's yes. moving there for bright and glamorous future. <laughs> uh, schools are very successful in the course of doing that. You know, we would hire very ambitious, idealistic uh, teachers, often young or early in their careers to try and change the world on behalf of the kids in our schools. And there were just a ton, 
they were wonderful people and they would come to us with really hard questions that usually began, what do I do if, what do I do when? And there was just nothing in the literature about what do you, what do you do when? Uh, and so in an effort to answer their questions, I started studying the highest performing teachers that I could find. I used these sort of regression data sets that I, and things I've learned to do in business school, you know, controlling for poverty, where, you know, where were the highest performing teachers who dealt with high poverty populations? And I just started sneaking into their classrooms to see what they did. And as soon as I went there, you know, it was just breathtaking. They were so brilliant, these teachers. So then I started bringing my video camera uh, to videotape them, in part because I thought that no one would really believe it, but also in part because I was like, you know, this would be so powerful if you could just show someone two minutes of what this teacher does and then yes. we could copy it. And uh, so this, you know, I was working on this for four or five years before someone came to me and said, you know, maybe you should make this a book. Um, but this was the beginnings of Teach Like a Champion, which was studying positive outliers to watch what they actually do in the classroom and developing video to, to back it up. So um, that was the initial uh, the initial starting of Teach Like a Champion, I wrote version one, then I rewrote it after, you know, I probably learned more in the five years. In the, the original version was published in 2010. The second one came out in 2015. I probably learned more between 2010 and 2015 than I did in writing the initial version of the book. And, um, and since then I've done a, a book on reading and a, a book about the power of practice, uh, about, you know, the ideas that as teachers were performers, we go live in front of our classrooms five times a day. And so one of the ways to master, if you want skills to come out in the midst of performance, you have to practice. So that's been another, um, area of emphasis. That's fantastic, Doug. Flipping it. And we're, oh, I mean, I have a million questions to ask you, especially when we when we dig into uh, Teach Like a Champion. But I, I want to start with, it's, it's one of my favourite questions to ask this, uh, Doug. But uh, get, guess aren't a massive fan of it, but, uh, but I can't resist. So I'm going to ask you to, to think back to your teaching days and to, to pick a lesson that didn't go according to plan. And I want to know why, why it didn't go well. And crucially, what, what did you learn from the experience? Mm. I mean, there were so many. <laughs> um, well, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of one. Uh, I mean, let me be absolutely clear here that there were many lessons that were <laughs> that were out and out disasters. But I just one just popped to mind that was really powerful for me. Uh, it's something that I learned in writing the second version of the book, which um, uh, we were discussing. It. This was my ninth grade class at the first school that I taught in in New Jersey, and we were discussing a book it was probably something like grapes of wrath at the time and i uh i tended to ask great big broad sweeping questions you know about the nature of justice in the book and those are probably good questions but i think also my students didn't understand at sometimes you know just the real basics of who did what to when who did what to whom when in the book yes. and so i kind of I jumped over all that so I asked I asked my students a question and a kid named Danny answered and his his question was um, I mean he was dead wrong his answer was dead wrong uh, you know by any by any plausible <laughs> interpretation of the book and so I did what I normally do when I when I graciously wanted to react to a student giving a dead wrong answer which they often did in my classroom uh, I looked at the sky you know kind of rolled my eyes upward as if imploring for support from the dean and said hmm. Um, interesting <laughs> yeah. and a little girl in the back danielle said uh-oh better think again uh and the whole class broke up laughing because they <laughs> knew because they knew and i didn't know that i had a tell 
Yes. And a tell, a tell is an unintentional signal that I send to my students when I think the answer is subpar. Right. Uh, and it communicates to students that was a really poor answer, whether I realize it or not. And my tell, you know, tells, there are some tells that can be better or worse or more pejorative than others. But this is a moment where I realized that I thought that I was saying to my kids, interesting, I value your answer. I'm so glad you gave that. You, particip- you said that aloud in the classroom, but without realizing it, what I was communicating was, gosh, that was a stupid thing to say. Please don't speak aloud in class again. Yes. And that, um, you know, this is one of the things, it was one of the techniques uh, in the, in, it's called culture of error in the second version of the book. And one of the things we talk about is managing your tell, which is you have to be very careful about the unintended, the unintentional signals you send, send, send to students about their participation because you, Obviously, the last thing you would ever want to say to a student is, uh, my God, that was stupid. Please don't say that. <laughs> you want to say, that's interesting. Let's look at why you thought that. Or, uh, you know, you, you can think of the more productive things you would say. So this is the moment that I, when, in retrospect, I realized that I recognized that I had to tell that I was giving away more to students about my affective feeling about the responses than I should have been. I was unaware of it. I wasn't managing it. And, uh, it, and it was, uh, it was a problem. Yes. And, and just, and, 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 and unfortunately I only realized that 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, I, I realized it in the moment, but I only realized what it meant and how it was, uh, systematically a problem in the classroom many years later and you know uh, that's a hard part of teaching I guess too oh absolutely and I'll tell you what just on that one when I read um, when I read version 2.0 of teach like a champion I started thinking flipping like I bet I've got these tells left right and center so I thought probably the best thing to do was ask my students do I do anything to give away what the correct answer is? And a really obvious thing that I did, and I feel stupid for saying this, Doug, so we can we can both share in our regrets for, for past mistakes here, is that I, I love using diagnostic multiple choice questions, as, as listeners mm-hmm. of this show will know. And whenever I'd put a question up and students would vote what they think the correct answer is, A, B, C, or D, and then I'd go around and collect, collect reasons off the students, I would always leave the correct answer till the last mm-hmm. one. So if the correct answer was B, I would ask, why do you think the answer is A? Why do you think the answer is C? Why do you think the answer is D? Now, why do you think the answer is B? And it was so mm-hmm. obvious. And now just to, right. rever- just to reverse that, I just always just do it in alphabetical order, A, B, C, D. And just that little difference, that little tweaks made a, made a huge difference because it means that kids are always listening. They don't switch off because they've realized, oh, my answer must be wrong and so on. It's tricky, isn't it? These, these tells, we've, we've all got them and it's just hard to identify yeah. them. That is a brilliant example of a tell, by the way. Uh, you know, Part of it is probably in the affect. Now, what about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But honestly, just you know, I mean, kids are so they're so sharp, right? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you're a parent, also, but I've my my own my own biological children are also onto me for many of my. (laughs) But uh, it's such a uh, it's such a sharp and revealing observation. I'm sure, like I'm sure I did that a thousand times, and you're very uh, humble and self aware for both asking them and, and reacting to it and changing it. But it's such, it's one of the amazing things about the cl- the classroom, which is tiny things can be such a game changer. Yes. One of my favorite books is, um, is Chip and Dan Heath's book, Switch, How to Make Change When Change is Hard. It's just about like, the difficulties of getting adults to change their behavior. But they point out that we often presume that the size of a solution maps to the size of a problem. Yes. But t- tiny little things 
can change so much in your you know, tiny little moves, like changing the changing your te- recognizing what your tell is and changing your tell to engage more students can have such profound impact across a classroom, cascading impact. Absolutely. And the, and the other one, again, just whilst we're on kind of tells, and the, I think this was in the culture of error as well, is when I read it, it you know, sometimes you read something and you think, oh, and it just it's almost like a sinking feeling in your heart because you think oh my god like i've been teaching 12 i mean if you think you had a a sinking feeling reading it imagine how i felt (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely and it was the um the principle of rounding up and i think this is just brilliant this this dog and i do it all the time and and for listeners who who aren't aware of it a a classic thing would be a, a child gives an answer so you ask a question a child gives an answer and, and it's not quite what you want the child to say. It, there's, a, there's a grain of truth in there. And you end up saying as a teacher something like, oh, I know exactly what you're trying to say. And then you repeat it, but often adding an extra bit that happens to be the key bit, the, the key bit that the child omitted. But you kind of twist their answer into being a true answer. And I wonder if you could just talk, though, because I've been guilty of this so much. Mm. Well, why, why is that a bad thing? And, and how can how can we as teachers avoid it? Because I still don't think I'm good enough to uh, to kind of get around that one. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. And by the way, just to make you feel better, I should note that um, uh Teach Like a Champion is probably semi-autobiographical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, all, all, the, all the mistakes. Uh, sure. <laughs> so I, I think it's important because um, uh, when we when we do this rounding up, essentially what we're doing is it's not just that we're crowding out student thinking and doing the thinking for them. Right. What Craig means here is that... Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think the example I give in the book is about Romeo and Juliet because I'm, I'm an English teacher. So my, you know, my typical example would be, what's the relationship like between the Capulets and the Montagues in, uh, in Romeo and Juliet? They don't like each other. You know, but maybe that's your answer. And I say, right. What Craig is saying is that they've been feuding. They don't like each other and they've been feuding yeah. for generations. Right. And of course, like, you haven't said anything about a feud or about <laughs> sure. generations. You just... So... One, I crowd out the work, which is you are going deeper and putting precise words on the nature of a phenomena, which is like that to me is is thinking, is putting it into precise words and not just having a notion, but really locking down an idea. And I'm telling you that you got it right when you didn't get it right. Right. So I'm saying, yes, what Craig is saying is so then I so then if I'm Craig, I'm thinking, yep. I did great there, right? Yes, yes. Uh, as opposed to really useful start. Thank you for that, Craig. Let's see if we can push this answer and get more precise, which also, can I say, communicates to your classroom that the first answer is rarely sufficient. And I yes. just think that, like, if I want to define rigor in my classroom and I want to make it, you know, to go back to this notion of culture of error, I want to make it safe to be wrong, then I should signal and try and make it a habit of signaling that the first answer is very rarely sufficient if we're talking about something of substance. So thank you for getting us started. That's really useful. Let's see if we can now develop that answer. Right? That not only causes students to do the work, it sends a really clear message about what we do in the classroom and improving ideas and developing them until they're really useful. And uh, so that's why I think that being cognizant of rounding up is important. And I would just say with something like rounding up, um, you will never eliminate it from your teaching entirely, nor should you probably. There's some time when you're in a rush and you just have to get through something and it's probably okay to round up. But I think you want to be alert to the fact that it's one of those things that we do all the time without intentionality. It can have a 
profound and perversive effect on the classroom. So I want to try and manage it within reason. Got it. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, I wonder if we, we can just dig in a little bit more to, to some of the strategies for, from Teach Like a Champion. And I think I, w I was speaking to, to Danny Quinn um, in preparation for this interview. Um, and Danny's been a, a guest on this show a couple of times. And she said, oh, she's, such a great, she's, such oh, a great she's great. She's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm always intimidated and in awe whenever I whenever I speak or watch Dan, Danny speak. She, uh, she's fantastic. And the question she wanted to ask uh, Doug, well, she, she had a load, actually, but I've, I've kind of limited it to a couple. She I hope said. you limited it to the easy questions. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, hopefully this isn't too bad a one. But she said that she thought the most useful thing that, that you could tell teachers um, on this interview was if they were to pick kind of one or two strategies that, that you think would have the biggest impact, what, what should teachers prioritize? What are the kind of things that they could do tomorrow that would make a big difference? First of all, I think that's not surprising. I think that's a brilliant question because... Um, as a friend of mine who's a rugby coach says, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none, right? Yeah, <laughs> like very one, good. Of the key, one of the keys to making change and building a culture of improvement for yourself in the classroom is focusing on one or two things and not putting on yourself the expectation that you have to do, you know, 62 things better, you know, choose something that's important to you and develop it. The second thing I would say is it's probably different for almost everyone, you know, for a teacher like Danny, who's, uh, who's just an exemplary teacher and uh, has been reflecting on her teaching for some time. It's probably different from a first year classroom from a first year teacher. So, um, so I don't know that the answer is always correct, but maybe I'll tell you about one of my favorite techniques. Would that be a, would that, that be a viable? That'd be great. <laughs> that'd be great Doug. Yeah. <laughs> one of my very favorite techniques is called show call. The idea behind show call is so maybe just a, a little bit of a bird walk here, a digression into uh, the original idea is cold call. And the idea of cold call, I hope many of your readers know, is calling on students whether or not they have their hands in the air. Right. And this is useful because um, it allows me to engage every student in the class whether or not they are inclined to be engaged at any moment. Uh, it allows me to check for understanding reliably and not just sample the kids who are uh, who've raised their hands to tell me if they think they've got it right. Uh, and it allows me to control pacing, uh, you know, the pace that I move in my classroom. So it's a really valuable tool. Can I just ask on that, Doug, just the practicalities sure. of it? Are you a fan yeah. of kind of random name generators or lollipop yeah, sticks or what, what do you use for it? I wouldn't say that I dislike lollipop sticks and random generators. They're OK sometimes. I get that they're fun for some teachers and that's OK. But I, distinguish, I don't consider them to be cold call. I discuss them in a the, uh, similar technique called pepper. And I don't think that they're cold call. And generally, I don't think that they're as intentional as cold call. So I, I prefer cold call. And the reasons why are um, when I use popsicle sticks, I give away a lot of my strategy in that I can't call on Craig because I know that Craig is the student who's struggling with adding fractions with unlike denominators. And he's really the most worthwhile person for me to call on here. Right. Or I can't call on Craig because I've asked you to solve the problem and now I'm circulating, walking, looking over your shoulders and, and I realize that Craig either has an exemplary solution, has done something interesting that no one else has done or has made a common error and therefore, you know, I give away some of my strategy. Yes. And a lot of people say, oh, well, I can do that with popsicle sticks because I don't have to read what's actually on the popsicle stick. <laughs> yeah. But I also think there's a cultural difference between looking at a student and say, tell us what you were thinking, Craig. Which is, or Craig said something interesting that I think it's worth our reflecting on. Craig, what did you? Right, so that's a cold call. 
Yes. And that is to me like an inclusive cold call that communicates the value of my, the value I place on your response. Or I want, Craig, I'm wondering what you're thinking because I think about you as an individual as opposed to pulling out a popsicle stick and saying, oh, look, it's Craig. Yes. Uh, which mechanizes the process. And I think we, I think some people think of cold call as something that is negative, stressful for students. Mm. And certainly it can be done that way. But honestly, I think that to me, a cold call is a very positive thing. Sometimes people who don't like teach like a champion will say, hmm, do you use these, do you use these tech? Would you want these techniques to be used on your own children? Do you use them on your own? <laughs> and I would say mostly yes. Um, so, and here's, you know, exact at the, around the dinner table last night, I have three children. They're wonderful. I love them. I adore them. I assure you. Um, <laughs> I have a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And sometimes at dinner, like, you know, the 16-year-old and the 14-year-old, they're just, they're back and forth, you know, bantering about the teachers and their high school and, you know, or some, you know, something that they're both interested in. And the 9-year-old is kind of, she's a little bit cut off from the conversation. And so sometimes, I don't think about it this way, but I cold call her by just saying, so, Willa, what do you you think about, or tell me what happened, you know, the simplest cold call would be, tell me what happened in school today for you, Willa. That's a cold call, yes. right? It's saying, I'm asking you to participate in the conversation because I care about your thinking. I want to know what you think. You're an important individual in this classroom. And I, th- I think that people understand, underestimate how inclusive it can be. And maybe a question you could ask yourself is like, think of all the reasons why students might have an answer in their head, possibly a very good answer, possibly even want to share that answer with the class, but still not raise their hands. Yes. Right. So they might do it because they're unsure of the answer. And so they feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, so it, but maybe that's what makes the answer so great is they've done something really risky or fascinating and they're not sure about it, but you really want to share it. It could be because they're wondering if they talk too much. It could be because they're not comfortable talking out loud. They've never done it successfully. And so they're a little bit afraid. It could be because... They just assume sometimes, you know, check out and let someone else do the work, but actually they're thinking quite interesting thoughts. It could be, I mean, there are a thousand reasons. Like I've been in the classroom where the kid is looking at you and is basically saying, please call on me, but I'm not going to raise my hand because, (laughs) because there are three other, I mean, this was me in, in, you know, in year eight, there are three other boys in the class who are on the, who are also on the football team. And I really want to impress them and I want them to think I'm cool. I mean, like side side story, ironically, no one thought I was cool, (laughs) but but I want the, I've spent years in school walking around with a piece of paper folded up in my back pocket and a stump of pencil because I didn't want to carry books to class because I didn't want people to think that I was nerdy. But during class, my mind, you know, my mind was going. And if a teacher had said, well, Doug, you know, what do you think? Um, I probably would have had a lot to say and it actually would have been important to demonstrate to me that I could, that I could do that, that I could participate in class and it wouldn't. Yes. Uh, it wouldn't compromise me social. I was afraid of that. So there are just a thousand reasons why students might have something valuable to say in class, but still might not raise their hand. And so to me, it's a gift to look at a student and say, Craig, what are you thinking? Like, and, and Craig can say, I'm not really sure. He's like, great. Well, a lot of people aren't sure. Let's wrestle with that. Right yes. Especially if I smile, but if I humanize this idea of a cold call, I think that a cold call is a deeply inclusive thing to do in your classroom. It says, 
I'm not going to just be beholden to the three kids who are talkers and raise their hands over and over. Maybe they talk too much. I actually care deeply about what other students in my class are thinking. It's my job to know what's on your mind. And so I'm going to cold call you sometimes. So um, I think that that that's one of the you lose that inclusiveness, that positivity, uh, the the invitation to participate in class because you're you and I care about you when you use popsicle sticks. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you should never use them, but actually, I think I think the strength of cold call is its inclusiveness. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're spot on, and I wonder. I know I'm kind of diverting you from from the original question here, but just on that, I think one that's one strategy again that's directly related to cold call, and I think it's important to say here is. I think a cold call can be shut down as soon as kids realize that just saying something like, I don't know, sir, is a, right. is a, val- is a valid answer. Because, again, just to even go back to you as a, you as a student there who's keen to show their, show what they know, if your friends, your football friends have been asked what do they think and they just go, oh, I don't know, sir, I don't know, sir, the kind of pressure's then on you to say, well, I don't know either, even though you might know. And likewise, <laughs> it's... It's, it's the most useless thing for, for a teacher to hear when, when a child says, I don't know, because we don't know. Because Are they saying that because they're scared, because they don't know, because they've got a misconception? It, it, it doesn't give us off that much information. So how do we deal with that, Doug? How do we deal with I yeah. don't know? Yeah, I think you're uh, – I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of ways to deal with it, but one of the most useful is this technique called no opt-out. Yes. Which is um, – using this a variety of cues, but then coming back to the original student. So if you if I called on you and you said, I don't know, let's say I asked you to uh, add two fractions with unlike denominators, and you said, and maybe even you said it with some attitude, I don't know, you know <laughs> yeah. which, which I think is interesting because um, some teachers are intimidated by that because they haven't thought about how they'll respond to it. And so yes. they leave, leave the student alone for the rest of the lesson or the rest of the week. Or if the student is really scary for the rest of the year. Yeah, of course. And um, or if the you know what for whatever reason, not necessarily, but for whatever reason, like this this is this is our it's not okay for a student to to find a way to opt out of learning for a year. So what I might do is I say, great, who can tell Craig the first thing that he needs to do? Great, back to you, Craig. Right. Uh, so uh, yes. he needs, so uh, so there I'm kind of giving you I'm doing two things. I'm giving you a starting point. Uh, to you know, break down the answer and, and let you uh, take the first step. Two, I'm signaling to you that I'm not going to give up on you. I'm you know just because you say you don't know. And three, I'm valorizing the knowledge of your classmates. Right, one of your classmates provides the solution, and therefore um, it changes your perception of your classmates as people you want to impress with your lack of knowledge. Is like actually there are smart people in the classroom who are engaged and who can can help. You know, so like. Uh, Ironically, when I was a middle school student and I was worried about impressing the lads on the football team, many of them were actually very good students, even though I didn't realize that. I only found this out later when one of them went to Yale. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I, always thought, I always thought he was a brick. <laughs> and I was, trying to be a, I was trying to be a brick to impress him. <laughs> and, it, and he went to Yale, right? So, uh, so calling on him and saying, okay, you know, like, Help him make the first step. What would he do? What should he do first here? Um, could have been a powerful thing. And maybe then maybe you come back at me with, like I said, I don't know, right? Maybe you push back even farther and say, great. So, um, what would, so back to you, let's say the other student is Kevin, back to you, Kev. Um, what is one third plus one half, right? Kevin gives me an answer. It's five, six, right? Okay. <laughs> 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 right. So say, great. Back to you, Craig. What's the answer? 
five, six, great. And then maybe I ask a follow-up question, great. And how did you do that? What was the first thing they did to get there, right? So now yes. I'm not just, I'm A, I'm signaling you like, you're going to have to repeat the, you're not going to save any work by saying, I don't know. Yes. So you're at least going to have to repeat the answer, but now I come with a follow-up. And what was the first thing you did? What was one of the key things you did to solve it? What was it that, you know, uh, or even I say, great, now I'm going to give you another one for you to try, right? So now maybe I let you show that you can apply that idea by asking a stretch of questions. So yes. I'm not saying this is always like, you know, always a solution to, I don't know. Um, but I do want to message to my students that I will take and engage positively any answer other than a lack of effort, you know, I, other than you're telling me de facto, I won't try. Yes. And so I also might want to socialize students. Like sometimes you say, I don't know, but you mean I'm confused about something. And so I might want to, you know, uh, I might allow you to ask a question back, like, uh, I'm confused about the term denominator, or I need help with the term denominator, or, you know, so I might even like frame some questions that you could ask back, but I, what I, what I want to do is eliminate the out that the phrase, I don't know, subtext, leave me alone provides to students in many classrooms. Absolutely. F fantastic. And yeah, sorry for kind of sending us off on that tangent, though, but I, th I thought it was important to cover. But back to um, So back to Danny Quinn's question about the, the, the uh, strategy we should prioritize. You mentioned that there's kind of almost been an upgrade to the uh, cold call. Could you talk a little bit about that? I love I love I love I love this technique show call. And the idea is it's a cold call of a student's written work. Independent written work is obviously incredibly uh, important in every classroom. So let's say I give you, we go through a couple of problems and then I give you a slightly, we're doing adding fractions with unlike denominators again, and I give you a slightly harder problem to solve on your own and everyone is trying to solve it at their desks and I'm walking around looking over your shoulder. One of the things I want to do is I want to manage the written lives of students. So first of all, when they're working independently at their desk, I want them to be doing their best work. Yes. And not racing through the problem, knowing that you're going to show me the, you know, uh, show me the answer at the end or knowing that I can't quite do it. Like I, I want to socialize high quality work when students are doing work independently. Um, and I want to learn from that work because often it's incredibly valuable instructionally. So a show call would be like, would say something like, OK, try and solve this one on your own. Do your best. I'll give you three minutes. While you're solving, I walk around, I look over the shoulders of various students, and I decide, I, I basically say, great, we've had three minutes, let's take a look at some of the work we've been doing in class, and I take your work, Craig, and instead of cold calling, you say, Craig, and saying, Craig, what did you work on? I say, let's take a look at what Craig's done, and I project your work to the classroom on the visualizer. And now a couple of things have happened. One, you, everyone in the classroom knows that when I ask you to do independent work, you have to do your best work because it could be shown at the class. Yes. And yeah. two, uh, what we're now going to do is spend five minutes studying student work, right? Student work has become the center of the classroom. Great. Let's take a look at Craig's work. He did some things very, very well here. Let's talk about some of the things that Craig did really well solving this problem. Yes, he did that. Yes, he did that. Thank you. Good analysis. Yes. Now there's one little problem. And I chose Craig's work because lots of people in the room were also struggling with this. So let's see if we can figure out what Craig did wrong and then apply it to our own problem. What's the mistake here? Great. Uh, Dolores, what's the mistake Craig made? Yes, that's correct. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, can you explain what Dolores is talking about, Kevin? Great. Now all of you back to work. Now that, now that we've looked at Craig's work, all of you back to work and see if you can solve the problem on your own. Go. So yes. 
Shopal not only allows me to manage and build incentives around quality work when students are working independently, but I can turn revising, editing, reviewing student work from a theoretical comment where we're discussing something we can't see to a moment where we're actually looking at student work and therefore student work becomes the center of the center of the classroom. And I think that this is, <clears throat> I think it's, it's really powerful. It's one of the most powerful ways, particularly in a maths classroom, that you can check for understanding, which is constantly assess and react to what student students' level of mastery of the thing that you're teaching them about. The one caveat, I would say I'm sure there's some people who are listening who are thinking, oh my God, I can't imagine like doing this to students projecting their work to the rest of the class. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, what a terrible thing to do. I wish I could show you this video that would be my answer to this that to that comment, but I'll just try and describe the video. It's actually in the maths classroom. It's a teacher named Paul Powell. At what was at the time the highest performing uh, majority low-income school in New York State. And he assigns the kids a problem and he walks over to a girl named Kalila's desk and he takes her paper and he and he walks over to the front of the room and he says, the theme of the theme of today is show your work. So I want to show off someone's work that's really exemplary and shows us all how to do it. Boom, turns on the visualizer, puts up Kalila's work, right? Look at this. Um, lays out the problem here, demonstrates X, demonstrates Y, boom, 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 right? He's just praising her work. Yes. Really, so so all of a sudden, like you could just, in this video, you can see Kalila sitting up in her seat and the, the pride she feels in having her work shown off to the class. And then he says, now, there's one little problem here. Let's see if we can figure out the one tiny thing that Kalila needs to do better. Who spotted it? And interestingly, in the video, Kalila's hand is the first one up. It's up, and her hand is up so, like, yes. so... Like she's figured out her own error and she's uh, she's she's proud of her work and she's proud of the fact that she can see the things she could do better. Calls on someone else, they like, they analyze the error. He says, "Great, I want you. To, I'm going to check off all the things that Kalila has done well. One, two, three. Look at your paper and make sure you've done that thing. And then four, make sure we've all fixed the fourth thing that Kalila had to work on. Back to work, go. And so this is the first time that he show you know the first time that you show call, you can make it an incredibly positive thing. Like you know. I want to show off someone's work. I want to show you some exemplary work that's happening in this classroom. Um, this does a couple of things, right? It valorizes high quality student work yes. and lets students see examples of the exemplary work that's happening around them, like just how sharp their classmates are and what they're, what they're capable of. And um, it allows me to, you know, like in the, best classrooms that I see now. I mean, kids are dying to have their work show called. They're waving, they're waving their, yes. their paper in there because they want to be show, show called because it can be such a positive experience. But it also ties into like to an idea that's powerful, I think, from, from Carol Dweck's work, which is uh, I really like the message of like, this is really good work and there's also something we can do to improve it. Everything we do, yes. like even our best work, there's always a way to get better. So I love the idea of like, I'm going to show off some exemplary work. We're going to talk about three things that are really powerful here. And then I want us to find one way to improve it. And then I'm, I'm disequating. That's probably, I'm sure that's not a word. Uh, <laughs> quality and improvement, right? I want kids to think that improvement is something that happens to every piece of work that I do, whether it's, uh, whether, you know, whether it's good or not. Right. So even, or even if my work is good, I'm still always striving to improve it. And I think it sends that message as well. So um, I, ju I just love this. You know, I, I, obviously, I, I think I can praise it because I 
like everything else in the book, I learned it from a teacher, right? I was standing in a classroom and yes. I saw a teacher. And I was like, oh, the world needs to know about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I would also say that some teachers sometimes ask, like, well, how do I do this without a visualizer? I don't have a fancy visual. You, you could do this with whiteboards, right? You could Your kids could solve problems on mini whiteboards and you can say, I want to show you an example. Let's look at it. You know, you could just take yes. someone's whiteboard up there. That's, you could take homework from last night and copy it and say, I want to take a look at some of the homework from last night. I've copied one of your answers. Let's study it and let's examine it, you know, et cetera. So I think there are lots of ways to do it without the technology as well. Oh, absolutely. And I absolutely love show call as well, Doug. And one thing I'm obsessed with, and it'll be no surprise to listeners of this podcast, is, is misconceptions. I can't get enough <laughs> of misconceptions. My, my life is dominated by, by just thinking about them all the time. And one thing that's particularly powerful is if you can confront students with a misconception. So to take your um, adding fractions example, if, if I've set kids off um, doing a problem involving adding fractions and I wander around the class and I've seen that, in fact, I don't know, let's take Josh. Josh has uh, added the numerators and added the denominators together. So he's done one third plus one half is two fifths, a classic misconception. What I, what I really want to do, but I, I find it difficult, and I think this is perhaps due to down to the culture of error and I think it's more a long-term thing, is I want to show the rest of the class Josh's work because I need them to see this misconception. I need to confront this misconception. But what I don't want to do is say to Josh, right, your work's useless, it's terrible, and I'm going to show the rest of the class it. So what I try to do, but I, again, I don't think I've got this right, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you might be able to point me in the, the right direction, is I try and make it as positive an experience to Josh as possible, because I genuinely am so grateful that he has made this this misconception, because it means we can all benefit from seeing it, all benefit from learning why it came about, all benefit from discussing how we can figure out that it's wrong and how we can make sure that we, that, that we do the correct way of doing it. Because I think whilst showcasing really good work is, is really, really beneficial, showcasing misconceptions and examples of, of errors can be possibly even more beneficial for the rest of the class. But we've got to make sure it's a positive experience for the kid whose work's being shown. D does that make sense, Doug? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you both on the importance of studying student errors. You know, making student work the center of the classroom is so powerful intellectually. Um, and the importance of normalizing it and even making it yes. positive. I think two things that can help there are, um, you know, first of all, globalizing it, which is like uh, Josh's error is probably indicative of many people in the class. In yes. fact, I'm assuming that that's why you project it. So I would say like, I could, I could name Josh or I could keep Josh anonymous. Either way, I'm going to show you an example of some work that's typical of something that a lot of us are struggling with. Yeah, right. So right there. And then I think you can also make it good. I'm just thinking of a phrase that a, a teacher used in, a, in, a, uh, in one of the videos in the book where he says, I'm so glad we made this mistake or I'm so glad you made this mistake. It's going to help me. It's going to help me to um, it's going to help me to help you. It's going to help us yes. all to get better. Or even like, yeah, there are a lot of like there are a lot of really good reasons why you do it that way, but that's actually not the right answer. Right. So there I'm kind of valid. Like you, you're, I, I can see you're thinking about it like a mathematician to be thinking about it that way, but this one is a little bit different. Right. So there yes. I've, I can find ways to both say like, this is a great thing that we made this, <laughs> that we made this mistake. We're going <laughs> to learn from it. Or yeah, like you're thinking rationally when you make the mistake, there are a lot of reasons why you did this. It happened. A lot of people get the, a lot of people get this wrong. Everybody gets this wrong at first. Right. But luckily we've made this mistake. And so right away. And so now we can fix it. Right. Which is like, it's normal. This is what school is. We're going to fix it. We're going to get better. 
discard it. Fantastic. And and the last question about, I mean, I could talk to you about Teach Like a Champion for for, for hours and hours, Doug, but the last question on this, um, I wonder, you, you talked about how uh, between version 1 and version 2.0, you, you've, you've learned more than you did um, kind of in the build-up to, to version 1. Has there been anything since the publication mm. of 2.0 that you've, you've come across that particularly excites you? It's so funny that you said that. I have here sitting on my desk, which I'm now opening, my marked up copy of Teach Like a Champion 2.0 it's, and I have a little sticker on it that says 3.0 notes. So, ah, nice. That'd be so world so, exclusive, this dog. I like this. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Uh, and the question is how, you know, like how much, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, so maybe I'll just flip through here and, and find a couple of highlights um, to share with you. So I think one of the things that I will definitely put into version three is um, more explicit tie-ins to what cognitive science is teaching us about the importance of knowledge, which is I think that a lot of the tools in Teach Like a Champion are effective for reinforcing content knowledge, but I don't think that I'm explicit enough about the importance of, of background knowledge uh, and uh, the importance of retrieval practice in particular. Yes. And so I think there's going to be just a, a section on now, you know, ironically, maybe maths are the place where it's least problematic, uh, though, I could, though I could be wrong, but just the idea that um, uh, you can't do critical thinking unless you have, uh, unless you know facts and you have background knowledge. And so let's make sure that our students have that. And then uh, you have to have your background knowledge in long term memory for it to be effective. So I have to be serious about retrieval practice. Uh, I, th I think um, for maths, Doug, that's 100 percent true. I, I would argue you can't teach problem solving unless kids have got automated, uh, stored and organized domain specific knowledge of all the, the concepts involved. So I think for maths, that is 100 percent spot on. Yeah, strongly agree. So, uh, so there's going to be a section on the cognitive science, and then I think I'm going to add to the ratio chapters, building knowledge, building ratio through knowledge, and just this, talking about the synergy of higher order thinking and uh, organized domain specific knowledge in long term memory. I just think that's absolutely critical. Fantastic. And w w when do you reckon that'll be out, Doug? Oh, I haven't even started writing yet. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me tell you one or two other things that, I, that I'm going to. Um, I'm going to add to the yeah. book because now you got now you got me. I got sure. my book open and like I, I, I want to tell somebody about it. Sure. <laughs> um, this uh, this next topic, by the way, there are I have a couple of blog posts on my uh, Teach Like a Champion blog about it, so you actually don't have to wait for the book. Uh, and I guess I'd also say about the retrieval practice knowledge stuff. This is something I've been writing a lot about in my my Teach Like a Champion blog. So if you want to know what's likely to be in 3.0, that's the you know the insider sources uh, what I'm blogging about it. The champion. Sure. But, so this next thing is something called means of participation, which is lots of times I will ask a question. I'll see teachers ask a question of their class, but they won't signal to their class in a, in a clear and legible way how they want their class to answer the question. Right. What's uh, what's one half plus one third? If I haven't answered, if I haven't signaled how I want you to answer that question, maybe a couple kids call out five, six. Ah, uh, right? yes, yes. As soon as that happens, um, I have a problem. I can't use wait time, which is yes. I'll give you some time to think about it. If you're not sure, you might think about the importance of denominators. Go back to your notes from yesterday. I'll give you ten seconds to think about it. You know, or even you know, uh, even just unnarrated wait time of letting kids think and letting ten more kids raise their hand. Right. I'm, so therefore, I'm allowing the 
the kids who are fast or who call out to dominate the classroom. But uh, I don't want just those three kids to answer the question. I want everyone to answer the question. So I can't use wait time. And I can't use cold call uh, because someone's, you know, uh, beating me to it. I can't cause everyone to answer the question. I can't cause them to do a turn and talk and write the answer. So all the different ways that I could, I cede my control over all the different ways that I could ask kids to answer a question when I'm not clear with them about means of participation. And if they're shouting out answers or I'm not clear about means of participation, it's on me. I have to clarify that. So one of the things I'm going to write about is just the importance of saying to, staying, saying to students, hands on this one, one third plus one half, or, um, uh, or just socializing students not to call out so that then I could cold call if I wanted to. Um, being, or you know, maybe sometimes it's okay for students to call out, but then I need to signal to them clearly when it is and when it isn't. A similar example, you know, sometimes I want them to call and I want to call in response. One third plus one half is, right? But you can see even there just by raising my voice, I'm, I'm signaling the means of participation that I expect. So if I said hands, or let's say I say question, and students always know that that means that they um, must not raise, certainly must not call out, but maybe even like will not raise their, if I say question, maybe it means I'm going to cold call, and therefore they can raise their hands if they want to, but they know it's going to be a cold call. Yes. Um, now I have control over the tools that I want to use as a teacher in my classroom, so I think that that will be um, something that I'll, I'll probably add to the 3.0 version of the, of the book. Um, that's great that's great and again it's one of those it's it's a simple thing right it's a little tweak that can be so effective that that's what i love about the majority of these strategies no that that's a great one that dog yeah there are a couple more maybe, maybe I'll, I'll tell you one more and then i'll then i'll stop lathering on uh, <laughs> it's just the importance of exemplar planning i think um planning and writing out the correct an exemplar correct answer to the most important question that you ask in class is really critical um it's very hard to think about what follow-up questions to ask when students get it wrong if you don't, if you haven't thought in advance through what a full and complete correct answer looks like. And so, uh, I think one of the most important things for teachers to do is to, you know, is to answer the questions in their own class beforehand and write out what they think an exemplar student answer would be because it, it just helps you to be ready to check for understanding and to be alert to the mistakes that students will make. And then when I want to show call or want to ask follow-up questions, I know the things that are missing, what the gap is between what students are doing and the ideal answer because I've thought about what the ideal answer is. That's really interesting. And, and again, I've, I've spoke about this on my podcast in the past, but I spent probably the first five years of my teaching career just being permanently surprised by the mistakes kids made because I wasn't pre I wasn't prepared for it. That that was that was a problem. I, I knew in my head how I thought students would respond. But, but as you say, because I'd not physically written down the answer to a, a multi-step problem solving question. I couldn't predict how kids were going to respond and that left me unprepared and, and ineffective dealing with it. So I think that's, that's yeah. really sound advice. And maybe this is even like, maybe this advice is even more useful outside the math sphere where I, th I think people are used to thinking about this is what the right answer should look like. But let's say in English or history where like I might, like, Oh, there are a lot of answers to it, you know, um, uh, what was Abraham's Lincoln? What was Abraham Lincoln's motivation in, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to keep Kentucky in the Union during the Civil War? Right? Like there are a lot of it. There are, you know, like there are a lot of plausible answers there. Yes. So I think so. You know, teachers might not plan out. So what is 
what are the most important things for students to say here? What's a, what is it, what consists of a complete answer? And what am I expecting and shooting for here? So that when a student says, maybe Lincoln thought X. Yes. I say, interesting. That, that's probably part of it. Let's first focus on what's the most important thing that was happening right now, right? Or, um, or great, that's part of it. There are two more things we need to add to it that were really important here, right? So that allows me to do my follow-up if I thought about or correcting complete looks like especially powerful and in, in disciplines that have maybe slightly more subjectivity and answers than maths got it F fantastic well that, that was a, a great world exclusive that dog i'm yeah already got my pre-order for, for for to know <laughs> that's brilliant um there's just one more area that i'd like to talk to you about before we we wrap up with your reflections and the reason for this and this is professional development or training and the reason is doug i know you're over in the at the time of recording you're over in the uk um, um a couple of weeks ago and i just from seeing on twitter the the response to your, your training course that you ran with was incredible with with teachers describing it's the best cpd they've ever had and so on so i thought it would just be great just to ask just for a bit of advice because i know a lot of teachers listening will even have to just deliver a, a train a 20 minute slot in a departmental meeting or something like that right up to people who are delivering workshops for hundreds of teachers but do you have any advice for teachers planning or running professional development sessions for for their colleagues mm. uh sure I would only give some advice if they asked me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but since you asked, um, <laughs> I think that, I mean, I, th I think a good model is see it, name it, do it. Uh, and this uh, this model, that, that phrase comes from my colleague, Paul Bambrick, so uh, here at Common School, so I want to credit him for that. But I think it's really helpful for people to first see the thing that, that you're asking them to do in the classroom. That's why I love videotape so much. I love to show at least I love to show two videos of something so that I'm not telling people like this is the one white way to do it. But here, ah, yes. here are two teachers doing versions of the same thing. Let's talk about what's theme and what's variation here so that you can find a version of it. That's natural for you. Do not ascribe to, you know, um, I think the teaching techniques are tools that crafts people adapt to their own style and to the needs yes. of the situation that they're in. So I always want to signal that. So I want to see it. Then I want to name it, which is like, let's let's put a name, a memorable name on this thing that we're seeing here uh, and talk about it. So that one, so that we can remember it better, but two, so that we can continue to discuss it after this CPD session. Right. Um, I think one of the hidden secrets about CPD is that um, the degree to which it changes adult adult behavior is most contingent upon what happens after the session. Yes. Do people continue to talk about this idea? Do you give them shared vocabulary to talk about? Do you have, do you follow up on it in some way where you say, great, I'll be coming around. Let's say you do it on show call, right? I want to give them the name show call so that they can talk about whether they show called. And then I might give them some vocabulary like the take and the reveal. Like the take is the part of the show call when you take paper off the student's desk. Do I say to the student, can I take this paper? Do I say, I'd love to show off your work to the rest of the class? Do I say nothing, right? The reveal is the moment when you show the work to the rest of the class. What do I say about it? I want to show off Craig's work. I want to take a look at some work that I think is really interesting. Like there are lots of ways you can do these moments. The only way that people will continue to talk about these moments is if I give them a vocabulary to talk about it. Yes. So now I've said, this is called the take. This is called the reveal, right? So <clears throat> we see it, we name it. Uh, I want to have people practice it. I want to have them do it. Teaching is um, 
even doing a very simple thing in a very complex environment is hard. Teaching is an incredibly complex environment. You're trying to teach complex content to 30 people who are having different emotional responses and different intellectual responses to what you're teaching. So even doing a very simple thing is very hard to keep in your head, in your, um, in your active working memory while you're teaching. So if possible, I want to drive it into muscle memory, into long-term memory through practice. Right, so I want to have people now get up out of their chairs and like, so let's pretend that you're show calling uh, with, you know, getting groups of three, pretend to take someone's paper and script out what your take and your reveal will be uh, so that you can, so you're comfortable with it and you refine the language, do it two or three times yourself. Now you're comfortable with it, you've got it in your own voice, you've done it enough times that it could actually come out in the classroom. So practice, I think, is hugely important. But then to go back to something that I was talking about, then, then like the last thing that's super important is the workshop, oh, even the best workshop in the world is insufficient to change behavior unless there's some kind of positive follow-up. Yes. Um, I'm going to walk around and look for great examples of show call and I'll email you when I see great examples or let's get back again together next week and let's talk about what went well and what was challenging. Right there, I'm socializing teachers to say, look, it's of course it's okay that you struggled to implement this thing's a hard thing to, hard thing to yeah. do. So instead of saying, you know, like, I'm sure it all went well. Like, let's talk about what's hard about it so we can problem solve. Uh, so I just think it's important that I give people the tools to continue talking about it and venues to continue discussing it. And then maybe, you know, when people are observed by their department chairs, um, I ask their, you know, I ask their department chairs to follow up on it and ask whether they're doing it or give them credit for doing it. So, I, uh, you know, again, I want to build a network, a nexus of interactions in the life of a teacher that, help and support and hold them accountable for using the ideas that we talk about in CPD. And that's really one of the only ways I think to, I think that's the key to long-term change. I actually just posted on my blog yesterday, some really great work that um, Josh Goodrich did at uh, Oasis South Bank in London. And what he does after CPD is he just follows up with very clear, concrete action steps. Um, they're really granular. He writes them out and he asks teachers to choose one or adapt one or uh, or use one as a model to write their own, but to identify a single action step that they're going to try and master each week. And then over over the subsequent weeks, you know, they choose a slightly different map, uh, action step. But you might do like three or four action steps in sequence for show call. And in fact, if you're interested in show call, uh, Josh shared his examples of the action steps that he wrote out for his teachers to use or choose or adapt in trying to master a show call, but it's basically like one small discrete action step per week and you do a sequence of them over time. And that's something that we discuss in our professional development conversations after the workshop. That's great. That's re real practical advice that Doug, that's, that's superb that. And j just to, just to wrap up really just a, a couple of reflections then I'll hand over to you for, for your big three. And um, the first is I, I'm on a bit of a, a journey sounds a bit of a corny way of saying it, but I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with educational research. I've essentially been blind to it for about 10 years and now I'm, I, I can't get enough of it. So I wonder Doug, um, if you had to pick out one, two or three or however you want to take it, just key concepts from educational research that you think it's essential teachers need to be aware of, what would they be? I think like you, they would coalesce around the idea of background knowledge, which I think has been misunderstood and undervalued. I think there's a narrative, certainly in the US, I suspect in the UK also, that um, minimizes the importance of background knowledge and says, why would I teach facts, mere facts, when kids can look anything up on Google? 
Uh, We should be teaching higher order thinking skills. And I think there would be a consensus of cognitive scientists to say that you cannot, that that higher order thinking skills, problem solving, for example, is, is not a transferable skill that it, um, just because I've learned to be, to do higher order thinking about, um, chemistry does not enable me to do, to be a higher order thinker about history, right? It's, it's domain specific. So I have to, I have to support students by giving them deep, rich, specific background knowledge. They do have to learn facts. They do have to memorize facts to drive them into long-term memory. And that is not the opposite of deep thinking. It is one of the supports of deep thinking. They're not, you know, we think uh, many people think of them as, as opposites, but uh, they're not even best friends. They're married. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I just, I just, I just think the research is, uh, very demonstrative in the field of cognitive science and, uh, somewhere between ignored and scorned by much of the education establishment in part because so because I think it's scorned by people who are fortunate enough to work with students who already have strong background knowledge and therefore they can fool themselves into thinking that background knowledge is not important is not relevant uh, is not as critical as it is and that is a huge 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 disservice to students who are not born to privilege and are not born to yes. families where uh, they go off to see Roman ruins on their vacations and they talk about uh, what's in the Guardian over dinner and, you know, uh, uh, and that, you know, kids not born to privilege suffer when we underestimate the importance of knowledge. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you there, Doug. And I just I wonder as well, um, just before we move on to your big three, are there any particular books that you'd recommend teachers would check out? Anything that's been particularly influential in, in your own thinking? There's so much. I'm really, uh, I'm on a bit of a reading jack right now. Really, <laughs> a couple of the things that I recommend are um, are not specific to maths teachers, so I hope you'll forgive them. No problem um, at all. Uh, Judith Hockman's book, The Writing Revolution, I think is, uh, particularly the first hundred pages of it, I think are just fundamental. Uh, my gloss on it is students don't know how to write sentences. We have them, we jump to writing paragraphs about things, but the sentences that they write are incoherent, or incorrect, or insufficient to capture their ideas. And I think we need to slow down and spend time teaching kids how to write complex compound sentences with uh, the idea of syntactic control where, uh, where students can manage different forms of syntax to be able to capture and, and express a complex idea in writing. I just think that that's it's huge. Um, my favorite chapter in Teach Like a Champion 2.0 is the chapter on writing, and I think I've only been thinking about it more since since writing it. So Judith Hoffman's The Writing Revolution is at the top of my list. Um, I was lucky enough to participate in Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson's uh, What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, which is uh, subtitled Bridging the Gap Between Research and Practice. You know, we know what the research says. How do you put it into practice in the classroom? Um, it's a superb book. I uh, put myself at the, you know, bottom of the list. of. I'm happy to be in the 18, let's just say, <laughs> for the, for the book, but, I know, but I know I'm not starting. <laughs> uh, I think another one, just thinking about the research of, of, like, of knowledge and uh, memory and retrieval practice, James Lang's Small Teaching, Everyday Lessons from the Science of Learning, is also outstanding. Uh, so those are three things that I've read. Um, my next 
book I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you is uh, is about sport and coaching. Um, nice. It's called The Coach's Guide to Teaching. My kids are athletes, and uh, I can't help thinking about it. Interestingly, I'll just say, like, um, at first I was I thought this was totally separate from the world of teaching. Yeah. Now I see that it's hugely important. One of the biggest issues in sport coaching is helping players learn to make decisions, uh, which is, you know, fundamental. Uh, and so I, I read and spent all this time reading all this cognitive research. Uh, and of the books that I read, I would say that Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow ri- uh, rises to the top, but also um, David Eagleman's uh, Hidden Lives of the Brain is also outstanding. Um, how much perception influences decision making. And so this is obviously, it turns out, I wrote this whole chapter on decision making in, in football in particular without realizing that this is really a book about teaching also that. You, that yes, I can teach you to make teaching moves to cold call to use wait time, but then the critical factors are, yeah, but how do I know when to do it and why? And how do I react to the cues in the classroom that tell me it's the right, it's the right, it's the right moment under performance pressure? And so I think one of the things that I'm thinking about for teacher training now is just this, the role of perception and decision making, and there's actually a lot of really interesting research on that. So. Um, Hopefully, I'll eventually get this book written, and I can't decide yet whether it's only for coaches or it's coaches and teachers or something like that. But anyway, um, that was a long question. Some of the things I'm reading and why I'm reading them. That sounds fascinating, Doug. That's absolutely amazing. And just to finish, just hand over to you for your big three. So are there uh, three websites or blog posts that you would uh, direct our listeners to? And I'll I'll place links to these and everything else we've discussed about in the show notes. Yeah, that's great. There aren't just three. There are so many. Sure. (laughs) So I just grabbed a few off the top of my head of what I've read recently that I always love. Um, Perry Fletcher Wood has a a really outstanding blog uh, where he reflects on learning. Uh, Carl Hendrick's blog. Uh, is also really great and ties in a lot to uh, what you've been talking about, uh, you know, just the research on learning. Uh, you'll post these so it'll be easier for people to easy for people to find them. And because I'm I'm a recovering English teacher, I really love Joe Facer's <laughs> Joe Facer's blog. Reading all the books, I just find it uh, reflective about the overlap between literature and teaching. So um, if there are any uh, there are any secret English and literature teachers listening to this maths post. <laughs> <laughs> a few of them do sneak in from time to time Doug so that's they're, yeah, that's they're a surreptitious bunch sure <laughs> they come in holding a calculator think they can get away with it but yeah no that's that's fantastic that Doug well listen um, I've taken up far too much of your time here I just want to thank you firstly for, for making time to speak to me today it's, it's been an absolute pleasure but also just secondly for your, for your book Doug it's, it's, it's been one of those up there for me with, with Daniel Williams and why students don't like school that it's, it's in that small category of things that has literally transformed how I think about my practice. I've been kind of cruising on autopilot for 10, 11 years, and now I've started to think, why am I doing everything? What justifies it? How could I be doing it better? And it's it's your book that, that's really helped that. So thank you so much for writing it. And again, thank you for your time today, Doug. Well, thank you for that, Craig. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate your kind words. So there you have it. There was my interview with Doug Lemov. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Doug was such a superb guest and I was so happy with how the interview went. 
But now the big question, what on earth am I gonna do with this takeaway? Because I could literally talk for three hours on some of the things that I've been thinking about and trying out having spoken to Doug, but I'm gonna try my best to be concise. I mean, as if I ever achieved that aim. But I'm just gonna focus on a couple of things that have immediately changed. Firstly, what I do in the classroom, and secondly, what I do outside the classroom in some of the training that I've delivered since speaking to Doug. And then I'm gonna hone in on one of my favorite Teach Like a Champion strategies that I've been itching to talk about ever since I started this podcast. So let's start with the first, let's start with show call. Now, Doug described this as one of his favorite strategies from Teach Like a Champion. And indeed, I was aware of show call, obviously having read the book, and I kind of thought I was doing it, but it was only when I spoke to Doug and I listened to his enthusiasm and crucially listened to the finer details of the rationale, rationale behind the strategy that I realized I'd been making a bit of a mistake and a bit of a missed opportunity. So, those of you who listened to my Greg Ashman interview um, and have subsequently heard me, me talk at any kind of training event will know that the way I present worked examples has been completely revolutionized by the insights of Greg and, and based on cognitive load theory. So I'm a huge fan of the example problem pair approach where I split my board into two and on the left hand part of the board I've got a worked example that I go through with the students and on the right hand side of the board there is a related problem for the students to try afterwards. Now, um, I've spoken with Greg and, and with others when I've been doing talks about how I like to present my example in silence and then narrate over the top to respect the limits of working memory and all this kind of stuff. But it's in the example that I subsequently give the kids to do where I think I've been making a mistake. Because what I do is I get the kids to do it independently and then I'll kind of say, uh, maybe I'll do a bit of cold call. So I'll choose a child to say, okay, how would, can you take us through how you do this example? Or I'll wander around the class and if I see a child who's done it particularly nicely, I may select them and say, okay, will you talk us through how you've done this example? But crucially, that tends to be the child sat down and me up at the board writing. So if it was a solving linear equations question and say it was 5x minus 1 equals 17 or whatever it may be, the child would say to me, right, the first thing I did was I added 1 to both sides of the equation. So the child would be sat down and I'd be at the board writing that down. Okay, so you added 1 to both sides plus 1 and then writing the next line out and so on. And that's fine because I'm only writing down what the child says. But I think one of the powers of show call is the fact that students see other students work. And I think there's a danger when we teach um, that students can think, right, well, it's just Sir getting it right, or it's just Miss getting it right. All I'm seeing on the board is Mr. Barton writing down correct maths. And I, I think that's a missed opportunity because that sometimes can feel out of reach for the students thinking, oh God, I don't know if I can get to that level because this is Sir doing it. This is my maths teacher doing it. But whenever they see one of their mates and it's their writing up on the board, then it's so much more powerful, I think, because it feels within reach. Now, there's two ways of doing that. The first is obviously get a kid up to the front to start writing things down on the board. But that's often quite a daunting experience for the child, I find, and um, depending on the kid. But also it's quite time consuming, particularly if it's a, a long worked example, like a big rearranging formula or, or a contextual exam problem. So the beauty of show call, or the second beauty of show call, is if you can use it on a visualizer, if you can grab a completed uh, worked example, just pop it up on the visualizer, and, and now of course you can get apps for the phone, for if you've got an iPhone or whatever that, that can do a similar thing. If you can actually physically show the students that exact example, 
then it's just so much quicker. And I think it's so much more powerful because it's what the child's written at the time. You can highlight features about how nicely it's set out. And crucially for the kids, they can relate that to exactly what's in front of them in their book. So I have come now completely changed again the way I do worked examples with that second part of it. I'm using show call now. I'm not asking kids how they answered it. I'm actually going around finding examples of what I really like and I'm showing that at the front of the class. So I love that. The second thing that's changed is in terms of training and talks. And I love what Doug said. See it, name it, do it for CPD. See it, name it, do it. And Doug is absolutely right. The, the danger of CPD is, and I see this so often, and I've been guilty of this. You sit through a CPD session and you think, this is flipping brilliant, this. This is wonderful. I love this. I'm good. This is going to change how I run lessons and all this kind of stuff. And then you leave the CPD session and you're back into the real world. You're back into the world of marking, reports, targets, planning, all that kind of stuff. And the CPD just starts to disappear and decay in your long-term memory and all those good intentions go away. But that advice, see it, name it, do it. So CPD now being a lot more practical. I like just Doug saying, we're going to actually model how we're doing this in the classroom. Get up out of your seats. You take the role of a student. I'll take the role of a teacher and let's get that dialogue going. But for me, what perhaps the most powerful thing was name it. And that's what that and it's only really dawned on me now that one of the main powers of Teach Like a Champion is the fact that the names of the strategies stick in your head. It's not things that you find hard to describe. They've got a name. Show call, plan for error that I'm going to talk about, culture of error. They have an actual name. And I think that's really important. So when I'm doing my training, and in, and in fact, I've, I've dabbled with this a little bit since speaking to Doug, I like to give specific names to things so uh, teachers then can relate them when they're thinking back and they don't have to think, oh, what, what was that thing? You know, when he did that and he did that and he did that, well, it was show call. It was plan for error, giving a name to it. And just the whole kind of idea of treating CPD like you would plan a lesson, I think is really powerful because I don't know about you, but I mean, when I go into a, like a whole school training or a meeting or something like that, when I walk into the room and I see uh, uh, chairs all in rows with no desks or anything like that, I almost think to myself, nice, this is going to be a bit of a sit-off. I can kind of just drift away a little bit here. But when I see desks there, or when I see things in groups, and when I see, oh, actually, we're going to have to do something here, we're going to have to move around, we're going to have to talk to people, we're going to have to do some work, then you can't sit off, then you engage. And as we know from Dan Willingham, students remember what they think about, or from Peps McRae, students remember what they attend to. And if I, as a teacher... I'm thinking about the CPD and I'm actively attending to it, then I'm more likely to remember it. So I thought that was really useful. And the other thing before I, I just talk a little bit about a, a strategy that I've used is I love what Doug said about facts and deep thinking. They're not the opposite, they're married to each other. And that's so true. That is so, so, so true. If students don't have facts, and I spoke about this with Lucy from Cambridge Maths, if they don't have them, in my opinion, automated to be able to fluently recall and use them without taking up space in, in working memory, then students can't do those higher order thinking problems, or they certainly can't solve problems as effectively as they will be able to if those facts weren't automated. So facts and deep thinking, they're not the opposite, they're married. Flipping love that, absolutely love that. So, the final thing I want to talk about in this takeaway is one of my favourite strategies from Teach Like a Champion, and that's plan for error. Now, I've mentioned this um, quite a bit 
um, over the podcast over the last couple of years. The fact, the fact that when I first started teaching, and I reckon this was about three years, I didn't have a clue what I was doing in terms of the errors kids were making. Every lesson was a surprise to me because the mistakes and misconceptions that were being revealed, I was like, oh, are you flipping joking me? I couldn't see them coming. And Doug talks about, and Dylan William does this as well, um, the, re- the importance of planning for error. Trying to reduce the element of surprise in the classroom for you as the teacher. Because if you're surprised by an error, you immediately have to start thinking on your feet. And then you've got to think, right, what's the best way? First, you've got to try and understand the error. Then it's a case of, right, how am I going to resolve this error? Do I have any supporting resources to hand and so on? And it's quite tricky um, in a classroom environment with 30 kids looking at you, the heat of the battle and all that kind of stuff. So if we can plan for error, if we can anticipate those misconceptions and mistakes our kids are going to make we're going to be better prepared and I have a favorite strategy for this and it'll be no surprise to regular listeners but it's to use diagnostic questions I flip in love a diagnostic questions for many 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 reasons but one of the main reasons is I can plan for error so those of you not familiar with diagnostic questions um, the way I do it on diagnosticquestions.com is we have one right answer and three wrong answers and crucially each of those wrong answers has been chosen to reveal a specific misconception and students should not be able to get the question right while still holding a misconception. But the beauty of using these questions and I use three of them every single lesson every single day with every single class is that if I look at the question in advance, and let's say, for example, A is the correct answer, but B reveals one misconception, C reveals another, and D D reveals another. If I look at the question in advance, I can think to myself, okay, if a student answers B, what's that going to tell me about their understanding? And what am I going to do about it? If, likewise, if a child answers C, what does that tell me? And what am I going to do about it? And this means I can plan in advance for the errors kids are likely to make. And that may mean I have up my sleeve an explanation, a demonstration, a worked example, a problem, an activity. But crucially, I can do that in advance. I don't have to do my thinking in front of the class. I can do my thinking in a less stressful, more calm, less time pressured environment. And I think that's so, so, so important. So planning for error using diagnostic questions has just been a revelation to me in my teaching over the last couple of years. So anyway... I hope you found that useful um, and not my takeaway at all. I'm talking about the interview with Doug Lemoff and, and I just want to once again thank Doug for giving up his time and for all the wonderful work he's done. Also, it's the time of the show where I give a little shout out to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And above all, you, the loyal listeners, for keeping listening, keep for sharing these podcasts around, for the nice comments that you leave on iTunes and on Twitter. And again, if you have time to leave a review, I would be over the moon. And share this one with your non-maths colleagues. This needs to go big, this episode. I think there's just so many insights in there. And look, it doesn't end here. You will not believe some of the guests that I've managed to get lined up for this show. I am so, so lucky to do this job. And it just, it means the world to me that other people find these interviews as useful as I'm finding them. So thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. You take care of yourselves and I will see you soon. Bye for now. Bye for now.